This episode is brought to you by stamps.com. If you are a small business owner, you know how much hard work and effort goes into maintaining a small business. I know because I am an indie podcaster. So if you've got a small business, you know that there is nothing more valuable than your time. So stop wasting it on trips to the post office. Stamps.com makes it easy to mail and ship right from your computer. Stamps.com basically brings the services of the US Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're in an office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and standard printer. No special supplies or equipment and within minutes, believe you me, within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. There is no risk. And with my promo code POD, P-O-D, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in POD, P-O-D, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. I think that when you are able to like align your interests with your talents with a new vehicle, beautiful things happen. I think that my purpose is really to try to tackle the things that I needed to work through as a kid. And I'm continuing to do that as an adult and hopefully telling my story will help other people tap into that and find their their purpose in, in this you know kind of world full of distractions. I am your host, Sadia Khan, and you're listening to Immigrantly. Our goal of this podcast is to challenge the stereotypical narratives surrounding immigrants and people of color in America. And hopefully, through the cross-cultural conversations we have here, we can help you, our listeners, come to a greater understanding of the world we live in. We really believe that by diving into these deep discussions, We come out the other end feeling more connected to one another. Isn't that amazing? And something I really love about having these conversations on Immigrantly with the years is that I'm always learning something new. For instance, recently we released Uli Beauty's episode, which taught me a great deal about Western European immigrant identity in America. I think there is this misconception that once we finish our formal schooling, we feel like we've finished our education. That's not right. And that's not true. We are always learning, or at least we should be open to learning. We have to accept that we do not know everything, no matter what our life experiences are, and that by continuously opening ourselves up to learning, we are working to become more compassionate members of society. 
And thanks to the digital age, there are so many ways that people can educate themselves today from podcasts to TikTok, always using reliable sources, of course. And to be honest, I think that just by listening to Immigrantly, you are already taking a step towards expanding your knowledge of the world around you. Yes, that's a plug. Our guest today is an educator and a firm believer that knowledge is a blessing. And I definitely agree with her. I am so excited to have Blair Imani join us today. Blair is an author, educator, and influencer living at the intersections of Black, bisexual, and Muslim identity. She's the author of Making Our Way Home, The Great Migration, and The Black American Dream, and Modern Her Story. And her most recent book, Read This to Get Smarter, is inspired by her viral 30-second micro-learning series, Smarter in Seconds. Smarter in Seconds, asking questions. Just because you're curious about someone's race, gender identity, sexual orientation, etc., does not mean they have to respond. Your curiosity does not entitle you to their time or their answers about their personal business. Smarter in Seconds. Joining me today is also Elisa Kazmi, one of our Immigrantly content writers. Why, you may ask? Well, simply put, I wanted our conversation to tap into diverse Muslim identity in America. And this conversation proved to be that and much more. So let's get started. Yeah, so we are so excited to have you here. Thanks to Elisa. She was able to make this happen. And I was drawn to your Instagram. That's how I was introduced to you, especially your Smarter in Seconds series. Yes, that was a surprise hit. I was trying to just educate in my best format and it ended up being a hit. Are you really surprised by the success of it? I was definitely initially. I think that So I uh, have signed with a brand agency to help me with my influencing and all types of stuff like that, which helps sustain my work and my education. And so they often like different social media companies will be like, hey, all of your people make money from social media. Why don't we let you know that we're dropping this, you know, real thing? And so I've always wanted to be a TikToker, but like. You know, it was difficult. I felt like I missed the the wave for Vine. Like I just, I was like, oh, now is my chance. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking like, well, I can't dance that well in front of camera. And like, I don't want to do my makeup on camera, but I can talk really fast and I can explain things really well. So I'll just, you know, use my special, you know, abilities to do what my mission is. And that's education. And I think that when you are able to like align your interests with your talents with mm. a new vehicle beautiful things happen. I love it. The fact that your education style is so simple, right? Um, You tackle these complex issues in such simple, easy way for people to digest. It's like, you know, bite-sized chunks of information that are quite palatable in a way. Was that a conscious decision? It definitely was. I think for me, it was like the conscious decision. It's every word 
has mm. to have intention, which is very much in line with, you know, Islam. Like, you know, everything is supposed to be with the intention of doing something good or when we do make a mistake, asking for forgiveness. And so mm. when I'm like doing every little word, like I did a lesson on calling in and calling out and I was like, OK, we have to get am this amount of nuance through in this mm. short period of time. But I really think about people in my life, like Miss um, Sadie Roberts-Joseph, who is one of my mentors. And I would tell her, like, you know, these third graders aren't going to understand. And she'd be like, well, if they don't understand, that's on you, not on them. Oh. And I was like, oh, drag me. You know, like, <laughs> it's really one of those things where we can get a lot of nuance simply. But I was looking at this meme recently, memes, which are just like the amazing way of communicating now. But it's even that short form. Memes are very short yeah. form. Um, but it was like, what you learn in school, can you tell it to me in five paragraphs what we learn in real life? I need seven seconds or I don't care. <laughs> and it's very much how it's basically using education and technology to reconfigure the ways that we learn, which is happening a lot in schools because of the pandemic, you know, learning digitally, learning from distance, yeah. um, but just trying to accelerate that learning process. And it's not to say that once you watch one of my videos, you're going to learn everything, but at least you will have better questions to ask to learn more. You know, what I found fascinating about your work is you're also unapologetically who you are. So you talk a lot about your experiences as a Muslim bisexual woman, right? Which is not easy to do. By the way, can I say something like this table right here is diverse Muslim identity. We are all from different backgrounds, cultural, ethnic, and we are all Muslims. It's, oh, it's so fun, <laughs> right? So before we dig into all of that, Blair, I want to take a step back and I want to know your story, right? You grew up in L.A. Tell us your story because I'm sure it's pretty much intertwined into the work that you do and who you are today. It's actually really funny because when I converted to Islam, so I converted in 2015, um, my mom was like, well, it's time you knew. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I'm like waiting to find out that like all of my relatives have been Muslim or something. <laughs> but uh, she pulled out something that I made when I was like probably eight or 10 years old when we learned about the five pillars of Islam. And when we were talking about the Hajj, I was like, one day I want to be Muslim. And ta-da, now that I am. And my mom was like, yeah, we kind of saw this coming. But my background, you know, I grew up as the only black girl in a lot of my classes. Um, the school was diverse, but not in terms of having a lot of black students, but it was still pretty diverse in terms of having a lot of East Asian folks, South Asian folks, um, Middle Eastern, you know, white Americans. And the beautiful thing was that we were all able to contribute. For example, we didn't have a big Chinese New Year festival previously, and some of the parents got together and were like, there's a huge population of people who celebrate this, not Chinese New Year, we should say Lunar New Year because it's not exclusive to, you know, um, you know, to China, uh, even though that is a big part of it as well, but for Lunar New Year. And so there was just family members who would come and would do like the drum ceremonies and would have, you know, um, how to do fortune cookies, like really getting into that, like, you know, Chinese American identity specifically. And what I really loved about it was even though I didn't have people who looked like me, there was still comfort in being able to share who I am. So it definitely ladders up to what I do today. Like, I feel so comfortable sharing myself with people but also feel very comfortable like explaining who I am to people because that's how I was making connections growing up. But it was also really cool because I had friends who didn't speak a word of English and we were friends and I didn't speak a word of Mandarin and we were buddies. And so I've been really looking at that, at how all the ways we can communicate, whether it's online and how many miscommunications we can have even when we're speaking the same language. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try across language. It actually means that we need to be maybe more intentional when we're speaking and we think that we don't have to put as much effort in. But, yeah, it's it was just a, a really beautiful childhood where I felt very affirmed and comforted. Um, it made me have a very good sense of humanity, which has given me the problem of trusting everyone now. <laughs> um, but I think that 
it really just opened my mind to so many possibilities, whether it was around understanding or growing or coming together. And now I just try to share aspects of that with people. Something that I really realized recently was why I'm so committed to teaching and learning and making learning more expansive is because I always felt growing up that I couldn't and that, Mm. you know, I struggled with reading. I didn't really read well until I was in third grade and now I write books. And even when I'm like reading out loud from my book for the audiobook that I did for Read This to Get Smarter, the whole time I'm having that same like fear and it feels just like I'm in third grade standing up reading from a textbook. It's and I wrote the words, but I think that my purpose is really to try to tackle the things that I needed to work through as a kid. And I'm continuing to do that as an adult. And hopefully telling my story will help other people tap into that and find their their purpose. I really love that. And something that you tap into a lot in your work is this concept of unlearning, which is something that was very new to me as an adult. And I also grew up in an environment where I was the only person that looked like me in many ways. And um, it, it wasn't as affirming as you're describing. And I'm a bit jealous because it felt almost like the weight of explaining my identity was put onto me. Um, and that that is heavy. That is a heavy weight to carry. And I've had to unlearn as I got older that I don't have to be the representative for who I am. Do you and you carry your identity, as Sadia said, so beautifully. Thank you. Um, but is there ever a time where you wish you could shed some of that weight and just be seen as Blair for like the entity that you are on the inside? And are there spaces where you can already do that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I still am unlearning the idea that I don't have to explain my whole self. Like it's it's kind of we come to the same pressure, even though we had different origin points, like still feeling like we have to constantly explain mm-hmm. ourselves. And it's something that's very part of being racialized or otherized or marginalized in America. Toni Morrison talks about how in America only only white people get to be American and everyone else has to hyphenate. And there was definitely that compulsion, but also like being in L.A. and being a stage kid and wanting to share my and perform like it was like an exciting thing for me. But as I've, you know, come out, you know, I, I came out very publicly in 2017 on a conservative talk show, which I don't recommend anyone do, but <laughs> I didn't plan it. So um, and that's how life happens sometimes. But even in that feeling like I have to be the representative of every identity that I am. And that's something I definitely learned growing up. Like my we would be late for school if our hair wasn't perfect because my parents would be very correct in the fact that this is the only black person they're going to see you know, you have to conquer all the stereotypes and stuff, which is a lot of pressure. Um, And probably, you know, and it was just so like, I couldn't imagine another version of that where we just went to school with messy hair because that felt like such an impossibility. So I've learned this kind of very preoccupied perfection where that was kind of what I was seeking. And I've really come to realize recently that the whole thing is trying. We have to just try. Mm. But the way that I really settled my self-understanding in terms of identity was not looking at, like, every identity that I am as, like, another label to carry or another, like, oppression to experience, because that's going to happen anyway, whether or not I can describe (laughs) who I am. But I talk about it in my book as uh, a flower with many petals. And the, the metaphor there is that, you know, picture yourself as a flower and the petals on that flower. It can also be a succulent if you don't like flowers. That's fine. (laughs) But the petals on that flower are your identities. And the thing with flowers is that we don't like when we have a bouquet, we don't necessarily know unless we grew it ourselves where that flower came from. But we arrange them in a bouquet, just like when people come together, we can be arranged in a bouquet Um, and we don't know everybody's story. But when we look at a flower, we're not saying, oh, that that tulip is so basic. That hydrangea is so extra. We're just like, wow, this is beautiful. And that's how we have to regard one another and sometimes regard ourselves as this is just who we are. And we can label and explain and understand ourselves in these different ways. But whether we do or not, the fact that we are is enough. 
So I want to go back to what you talked about in terms of unlearning and also different identities and how they play out in the US. And I want to unpack and explore this further. You talk a lot about default settings in not just in the US but around the world, but let's talk about default settings in the US, right? Whiteness is default and everything else is in opposition of that whiteness. And similarly, you talk about being heterosexual as the default setting and everything else in opposition to that. And that is part of my unlearning that I'm doing every day, having grown up in Pakistan with certain stereotypes and certain ideas of what is normal and what isn't. Leo, what do you think is the key to breaking through those stereotypes and those defaults and normalizing other identities that pretty much exist everywhere? They absolutely exist everywhere. I think it's asking questions. It's not necessarily unlearning, but maybe relearning or learning differently. Questioning, why do I think that? Why do I think everyone is straight and cisgender? Mm. Why is that my assumption? <laughs> and it's like, once you think that, like, I, I'll talk to people and I'm always that person who's like a historian or like the two woke friend. And I'm like, huh, surprise, we were just here for cocktails and now we're having an existential crisis, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, somebody talking about like, oh, well, you know, the, you know, I did a documentary recently. It comes out in the summer um, about Josephine Baker and Ma Rainey. And I was talking about how they're queer. But also there were probably a lot of other queer people. And Josephine Baker never said hi, like, bonjour, je suis bisexual, because she was always in France. She never said it in English or French, but she was herself. And the way that we can understand her posthumously is probably as like a bisexual or queer woman. Um, but did she use those terms for herself? Was it even necessary? And so I think that there's this it's kind of an overcorrection where we have people being, uh, you know, feeling as though you can't be queer unless you're coming out. You can't be this unless you're coming out. And we're forgetting the fact that actually you can be your whole self. You can be that flower. And whether or not you're explaining and showing everyone your petals, you're still you. Mm. And we are sometimes assuming that the person that we're interacting with, whether it's queerness, whether it's religion, whether it's, you know, your relationship status, your trauma, your baggage, whatever, we're often assuming that that person feels comfortable to be their full selves with us or that they have to. And the fact is that a lot of people are masking or are closeting themselves sometimes because of oppression, sometimes because of fear, sometimes because of trauma, and sometimes because they want to. Mm. And it's really not uh, us to say that somebody should live their life in a certain way, but to hope that however we are living, that we're doing our best to be more helpful than harmful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to us, the concept of intersectionality is an easy one to understand because we all live intersectional lives. Mm. But for some folks, white, heterosexual, <laughs> cisgender folks, sorry we constantly call you out, but it's what the name of the game. But, you know, I think sometimes they are uh, opposed to embracing that intersectionality, even if they are progressive, quote unquote, and they're trying to, you know, achieve change, their inability to be intersectional or to recognize the need for intersectionality. I mean, let's talk about the white feminist movement, for example, um, yeah. What what does it mean to put intersectionality into practice, either for you or the way that you see it um, in helping progressive movements? Well, so we always have to shout out Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, the originator of the term intersectionality. Um, but much like the petals and the flowers thing I'm discussing, it's like the idea of intersectionality existed and it was to give name to it and create that framework and policy school uh, around it for Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. And I actually think, and I, I've been you know, talking about this with friends and kind of internally, that I think that we can sometimes 
assume based on socialization that everyone who is marginalized has this advanced understanding of intersectionality. But there are a lot of people who are still participating in white supremacy who have, you know, marginalized identities, who aren't working in the best self-interest. Similarly, there are people who have these default setting identities who, I mean, everyone who has a story to tell. It doesn't mean that suddenly intersectionality becomes for folks who have been granted power by society. Um, But to understand that the, the complexity of what it means to be a human, which is what I think intersectionality gets at as it relates, importantly, to systems of oppression, systems of control and power, reminding us that there are layers to everyone. And I think that part of that key to getting there and folks have, you know, done work around this, like, uh, you know, just thinking about how we have to also interrogate whiteness is is often discussed. doesn't mean that that should be the entire conversation as it relates to race and racialization. Mm. Um, It doesn't mean also that there's reverse racism because the reverse of racism is equality. (laughs) (laughs) But really thinking about how when we can understand perhaps our values and our experiences differently in a way where we can find some sort of connection to an experience that we've previously believed to not connect to us whatsoever, that's where the growth is. Mm. And sometimes we don't get to that final place. And I think anybody who tells you, and, and Rachel Ricketts was talking about this, um, if you're not, if you don't, if you think you're above the work, you're not even in the work. And so if you ever feel that you're gonna get to this like, I'm super woke, big brain, you're never going anywhere because you're, you're going to, you, you're believing that you can get to a place of stagnation. I think this concept that you're talking about, of kind of, it's, it's self-love and it's self-care to recognize when you're nearing burnout. And I think, um, you know, post complete lockdown, though we are still in a pandemic, but that's been a big shift, I feel like, in our generation and a younger generation of knowing to respect our own boundaries. And that is a form of self-love and self-care. But um, with older generations, I feel like there's that's looked down upon of like if you're not grinding 24-7 and working 24-7 to make a better world or to do your job or to make money, then you're you're failing. And, and I think that your content and the way you educate people is so accessible, but very much for a younger generation. And something that I struggle with is having these conversations with my parents or my grandparents. What is the way that you approach or that we should be approaching cross-generational conversations as it pertains to race or to queerness or to really anything that we should be talking about among generations? I think the, the key there is to not tell someone that their values are wrong unless it is rooted in harm. If a value is rooted in harm, then that's not, no, there's no moving. But if it's kind of an ambiguous thing, I I think that sometimes we can overemphasize the role of correction and not redirection, you know? Ooh, I'm going to use that one again. (laughs) I like that. But so when it's correction, it's no, you're wrong. Instead of what if you think about it this way? And using people's values to you to, as a vehicle to get them to where you need them to be. Um, maybe helping someone, if somebody is saying something harmful and they don't see that it's harmful because they are dehumanizing people, you know, then how can we use that sense of superiority or of, you know, wanting to be on the moral high ground that they may already embody? But to us, it's like, oh, clearly you're not being morally correct. But to mm-hmm. them, they are, mm-hmm. you know. And so and I think that's more often the case than people who are trying to actively be harmful. And I've experienced that, you know, speaking to people about abortion, talking about when I when I worked at Planned Parenthood, a big part of my job was teaching people how to talk about abortion in a way that moved the needle Mm -hmm. and the value that we would use that people had who were, you know, in at least at first against abortion was the idea of privacy and it being a personal choice and that we do not judge people. 
And that's a very, you know, you know, Bible Belt value. Like, don't judge, you know, and, and it still happens, but we often don't rise to our values. <laughs> um, and the, the way that the needle would move would be like, okay, well, you're against this. You're also against people coming into your house and telling you what to do. You're also against privacy being violated. You're also against judging people and not knowing their full story. Damn right I am. So if somebody, for whatever reason, needs to seek this, don't you agree that it should be a safe option, a legal option, so that it doesn't cause anything else in their life? Yeah, that makes sense. Amazing. Diffused. Mm. But if we're starting out being like, you're wrong and you're problematic, you know, <laughs> well, I think there is a space for that. Um, I think that it's not going to be transformative. It's not going to redirect that person's understanding. Um, and then also understanding that at some point they learned that the way to care for people was to dominate them and that we learn that in society all the time. I love that. And I think by doing that, when we're pointing out somebody's somebody being wrong, we are invariably boosting our own ego, right? Yeah, we're we like, are. we are right and you're wrong. But I will say this. It's not easy. It's no, not no. easy. It takes a lot of introspection and humility to say, you know what, let's have that dialogue just, and not judge each other, right? I was going to say just a couple of days ago, I, I work at the Center for Reproductive Rights, so I'm constantly talking about abortion rights and I'm steeped into this dialogue and narrative and I know all the talking points you're discussing. The other day I walked by an anti-abortion, quote unquote, rally protest in front of a Planned Parenthood, I, but I walked in front of, you know... Uh, anti-abortion people in front of a Planned Parenthood and I froze and I was like this is the moment that I feel like I've been waiting for or at least I can have some sort of conversation hmm. and I literally put my head down and I walked forward because I was terrified of conflict because you're good at knowing when something is dangerous and you're protecting your body and your mind I don't think that's where change happens hmm. I think that there are moments where we need to speak up in that way like if it's a protest against a state that clearly has a power dynamic and we have to come together and fight but the power dynamic created by a lot of people who are statistically white evangelicals who have the time mm. to take off of work and go protest in the middle of the day mm -hmm. um, and around something that doesn't affect their lives. And not be penalized for it, <laughs> and, right? And not be penalized because I'm still fighting the city of Baton Rouge um, <laughs> from something in 2016. It's a different paradigm. So don't mm. ever discount yourself for not rising to what you think might be a good occasion when your body and mind are protecting you through that fear. So I always do worry management. Why am I afraid? Because there's a whole lot of people who don't like me and probably already don't humanize me because I'm not, I don't look to them like, you know, who they should humanize, mm -hmm. a, a white person, you know? And okay, worry management. Can I change that? No. Do I have other people in my corner? No. Is this going to be unsafe? Yes. Awesome. Not doing it. Mm. Ah. And I think it's really that, you know, we are told that that's when big, bold change happens. That's a great way to make yourself right. Doing that activism that we look at in, through this lens of society as you needing to suffer in order to make a change. Mm -hmm. Yes, you might change one person's mind, but you also might end up with PTSD. And I mm -hmm. think that protecting and preserving ourselves and doing it in those quiet moments when it's less intense, it's not as grand. It's not as thanked. It's not as popular. But it is necessary. And I think those are ways, ways we can do that in our daily lives. So like people who are listening, they might be like, oh, I will go to a protest. I mean, let's think about all the people who put a black square up and, mm -hmm. you know, showed up at Black Lives Matter protests, but refused to have challenging conversations with their parents. Yeah. And it might be that they have some power dynamic where their parents make sure that they're paying for school. But we have to examine not necessarily privilege, but the power dynamics and the systems of oppression that we are attached to and how we can decide 
actually, I will sacrifice in this moment. I won't talk to my mom for a few months because I do need her to understand that she can't be racist to the doorman every time we come up in lower Manhattan. I'm sure that's somebody's specific experience. Um, <laughs> Can you and I be friends? <laughs> of course, of course. There's something that I want to talk about. Being a bisexual Muslim woman, have you had conversations around reconciliation between your face and your sexuality. All and the time. The reason why I am asking this is because there is this misconception that people of faith, they are homophobic or they cannot be queer. And that's something that I see around our, like within our community a lot. Have you had that conversation? You said, yeah. So yeah, tell me I, about it. I think one thing that's interesting is that when I converted, I was so afraid when people would say hijab is oppressive. It can wow. be. It can be used as a tool of oppression, just like a bikini can, mm -hmm. just like Absolutely. diet culture can, just like an abaya can, because it is a tool. And uh. the fabric is neutral. Now, the fabric is also not neutral because how is it made? Who are, what's the wages of the people who are getting mm. it? Right. But it is the system. It is the power and, and the context of power and oppression that it is being used for. And that was actually one of the first ways my mother could understand hijab when she saw the women on the beach in Khan, I believe, who uh, were being, you know, having their, you know, uh, burkinis removed. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, how would that happen? But the hard thing, too, that I'm allowed to talk about is that the first time my mom saw me in hijab, we were in the grocery store. She had just picked me up from the airport and she took it off of my head. Mm. And that was her imposing her own understanding and paradigm onto me and ended mm. up being oppressive. Because when we assume what is best for us is best for other people and we do not ask for consent, then we, it becomes harmful. I was so afraid from that to even acknowledge the reality of many women who and, and also, you know, to expand it beyond women, but people who are in different, you know, gender identities and expression who are forced to participate in something that society says they should. Mm -hmm. And that is not exclusive to hijab, but it is much easier for somebody who doesn't live in a Muslim majority country to say it's only over there because then they can ignore all of the anti-abortion legislation. Mm -hmm. They can ignore the way that HRT, hormone replacement therapy, is denied to trans people here. They can ignore all these different things. So the fact is that, yes, there are homophobic Muslims. Yes, there are gay Muslims. Yeah, there's gay homophobic Muslims <laughs> <laughs> because they're people. But to say that Islam is exclusively that is a cop out from us going out and looking externally. It's the same kind of process of thinking, oh, I'm in this moral high ground. This other thing must be horrible. Mm. And it pains me when I see people who have been so traumatized by Islam, but I see it with Christianity or any religion that they can no longer engage with it. But I also understand because I'm kind of that way with Christianity, very that way with Christianity. And I think that I, I keep evolving in my understanding of it because for me to have this conversation to like admit on something that's recorded that like actually hijab can be used oppressively was like, no, I can't. I'm letting I'm not being the good representative for Islam. Mm. But the fact is, for a lot of people, I never will be. So I may as well tell my truth mm, <laughs> and do it honestly and do it with nuance to not reinforce this idea that it is hijab that is the problem, mm. that it is Islam that is the problem. Because if it was, then why is everybody else oppressed also? And they have nothing <laughs> to do with Islam. Why is there oppression in, I don't know, Kentucky, where there's a very small Muslim population? Yeah. Because it's patriarchy. There are these larger themes, and the themes are colonization, which is about dominance, which is about power. It is all a question of power. When it comes to Islam, I converted to Islam. I read the entire Quran. I learned a little bit of Arabic, the way that some of my Jewish friends will do it for their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, like to learn Hebrew just enough to get through the texts, mm. you know. <laughs> um, and when I was reading it, I never was like, oh, oops. 
no gays, bye. Because <laughs> that wasn't how I understood it. Yeah. The way that I understand Islam is that it's very democratic ideally, right? Where you have, egalitarian, yeah. yeah, you have Allah, you have yourself, and everyone's Islam will be different. Mm-hmm. Now we add power and money, and that's not what ends up happening. But that is everything. We have the reason why I left Christianity was the King James Bible, which is what black Americans were forced to read and convert to Christianity with, was explicitly written by King James with the Council of Trent to remove anything that could be used as a power tool to make people feel powerful, to make people feel that actually the idea of Christ isn't just that there is Christ and you will never attain that, but that we can all try to attain an idea of being like Christ, of being prophet-like, of being, you know, good, never maybe reaching that status because we have that humility, never being God, but having something to aspire to that is not unique to a monarch or a king. But it doesn't mean that it's not everything for somebody else. Um, And the same thing is with Islam. For some people, they might think, well, there's no way that that can be liberatory. There's no way that can be anything. Well, when my mom had, uh, she had a tumor removed and she's doing well, alhamdulillah, um, she started wearing like, you know, like flowier clothes. And my mom's very much a like L.A. woman, like uh, breast augmentation. I'm also allowed to talk about all this stuff, by the way. <laughs> See, I'm getting your nervous. Mom, we want to have your mom on the podcast. Yeah, she, she, she would amazing. totally love that. Um, I'd have to have her sign something. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but like my mom is very much, you know, I think somebody who feels the pressures of having to, you know, make sure that you stay a size whatever. Having to make sure and, you know, has gone through doing the diet pill thing in the 80s and wanted to model, but, you know, was naturally thin and still was forced to be thinner and decided it couldn't be for her. So she started to design. And so with all of that, it was impossible, perhaps, for her to think that you could find liberation in saying no. Mm. And that's why I wear hijab. Yes, it's a way for me to show deference to Allah. But ultimately, it's a way for me to reclaim my body as a black woman in the United States whose body is always up for offer. It is so much easier for us to make these big grand statements about Islam is homophobic, this is homophobic, instead of us to go, you know, power is the problem, mm-hmm. not the tool that power that, you know, that power wields, but the power. I, I Something I want to talk about is how you're saying that faith looks different for everybody. And we're at a table with a Muslim woman. And in my head, the second I sat down, I was like, I'm the worst Muslim here. I'm such a bad Muslim. I'm constantly trying to rank myself amongst other Muslims because I've never read the Quran. I don't speak any Arabic at all. I actually only speak English. And there are some people who would say you're an excellent Muslim because of that. Yeah. Because they don't like Islam. <laughs> you, know? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. you know what I mean? Like, there's probably somebody who's like, amazing, a uh, Muslim that only speaks American, you know? Um, <laughs> That's so true. Although I don't speak Arabic either. Yeah, and I can't I. read it. I can't. I actually, I, read Quran I pray in English. English. Mm. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> So that's the truth, you know? Yeah, yeah but, I f- but I feel like what, what you're saying is the reason I was stripped of what I feel like was my um, my right to be unapologetically Muslim was because I grew up in a white supremacist society where I felt so othered and so ashamed that I wanted to shed that identity. And that's the thing. You internalize that person who I've given a Southern accent. We all know why. We know why. Although I love my woke Southerners. You come to the conclusion at great harm to yourself not because you don't like yourself, but because you've been taught not to. Mm, yeah. And so the, the conclusion of that, it, it's like, you hey, so white supremacist society. Now there are, you know, for example, I have curly hair. I spent a lot of time in high school straightening my hair. And it wasn't that I was actively thinking, oh, I'm doing this to be anti-black, but all of the anti-blackness around me. This one mime teacher I had in third grade for some reason who told me, or second grade, who told me I could never be a mime because my curls move when I stand still. What in the what, the what in the French anti-blackness, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry, mime teacher? Yes. It, it was California. 
And so the work that you have to do is to recognize that. So you're already way far ahead, you know, Thank you. and then determining the ways that you can return to an understanding of Islam that works for you. And it might be different than mine. It actually should be. Mm-hmm. It should be. And to be honest, when I came to the U.S., I remember initially I didn't talk about the fact that I'm a practicing Muslim and I pray and I fast because I thought I would be judged. So there is this stereotypical idea of what a Muslim woman should look like and how she speaks, which is so, so, so unfortunate. It took me a while to say, you know what? I am a practicing Muslim. This is what I do. And I'm going to wear my identity unapologetically. And it it takes a lot of effort and time. And I'm still learning. Well, you said you thought you would be judged. The fact is, you would be. And you probably are. It's a matter of you recognizing that and maybe doing some type of analysis on, is it worth me not being who I need to be. I also want to talk about your new book, which just came out, which just made the LA Times bestseller list. Congratulations. I'm so excited. Everyone's getting it for Christmas on my list, seriously. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And so it's one of those things where it's like, it's, it's very validating, but I'm also in this headspace where I know that it's not going to be for everyone. I don't write Mm. anything for everyone because I don't want everybody, I don't want everybody resonating because not everybody is needs it um and not everybody is will accept it and that's fine that's actually inevitable but getting to a place in my writing career where i feel as though i can contribute in a very way that's specific to, in, in a way that's very specific to me and that people are resonating with it mm. and feeling comfort in that not necessarily in the achievements but in the work that it, in the in the trying to get to mm. that place yeah, I I love that. And it's something I really want to ask you about is to like rewind a little bit and what the publishing process was like for you, because we just had a whole episode talking yeah. about oh, yes. how white the book publishing it industry is. can be. Almost as white as those pages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what was the experience? I know this isn't your first book, but um, for, for this book specifically, what was that process like for you? Well, I think one of the first things is that if you're a book agent and you're looking for clients, please hit me up. Because oh. even with two books under my belt, it was very difficult to get mm. a, a, a book agent. I think that sometimes there are book agents of color or of, you know, marginalized experience who feel as though it's now their job to take on everyone. But they can't take on everyone because there's areas of expertise. And yet there are a lot of agents who perhaps it's because they haven't unlearned the dehumanized dehumanized socialization that they've grown up with, that they don't think other people have stories to tell. Mm. And that's honestly the problem with publishing is that oftentimes authors of color Authors who are queer, authors who are, you know, this, you know, religious experience, um, marginalized religious experience are forced to tell the hardest story ever. Mm. And that's the thing. Like, I've been so incentivized to talk about, like, my whole every worst experience that it's actually very weird for me to say, no, I don't actually want to talk about that. Ah. And it's refreshing, but also what I deserve. And it's like, Mm -hmm. ooh, but that's not allowed for me. That's only allowed for people who aren't dehumanized by society. Because that's what society tells us. And so with publishing, I truly believe that everyone has a story within them. And statistically, if it were translated into every language, you would have, you know, tens of thousands of readers minimum because all of our story is is a progression from one place to another. And someone will connect. Mm. Someone will connect. And that can be a connection for bad or a connection for good or just a new way to understand. It doesn't always have to be on this binary of good and bad. Um, And I think there's also something that happens. I was talking to a friend of mine who spoke to uh, an author and I actually don't remember the person's name, but I wouldn't say it because I'm classy. And the author told her that she's an amazing writer, but she doesn't have anything to say. And what that sounds like immediately is that you feel threatened by this person joining this field, which is horrible Mm. because there are infinite books to be written. 
Mm-hmm. And as much as people try to say that there's, you know, reading's going to go away, like the reason why there are podcasts and why they will never be enough podcasts is because there will never be enough stories. Human beings are story machines. We tell them, we listen, we internalize them. That is how we function. Like the fact that y'all are waiting for me to finish this story is a function of human psyche. Mm. And so when we think of it that way, I want to empower absolutely everyone to feel as though if you have a story to write, it might not be in a book, it might be a YouTube, it might be a TikTok, but you, if you want to, deserve to tell that story. And it's just a matter of how you do it. But publishing is prestigious because it's exclusive. Mm -hmm. We don't get these, you know, we can't really decolonize academia if academia wants to continue to retain the benefits of being exclusive, which requires it to be, you know, to, to suppress and keep other people out. It's yeah. this constant process of if we want to have a better publishing industry, then we have to really examine what we value and what we don't value. And I think it's really hard for people to own up to the fact that, honestly, it's not the fact that, you know, XYZ Publishing House is racist. It's mm-hmm. that you haven't done anything. The person whose you know, acquisitions or hiring hasn't done anything to change it. For me, it was Caitlin Ketchum, my editor, who has been my editor for all three of my books. Uh, when I interviewed uh, for my first book, I told her kind of point blank. She was like, well, what makes yours unique from these other books that are about women and these different stories? And I was like, well, those talk about diversity, but they're all written by white women. And I definitely thought I'd never hear back from her again. <laughs> but it was also like, well, if I don't hear back from her again, I haven't heard back from these other 17, you know, publishing houses. And I think it's sometimes doing that thing uh, where Sarah Blakely, uh, Jessamine Stanley was talking about this in Richmond where uh, apparently Sarah Blakely, I haven't read about it uh, yet, but, you know, word of mouth, word of mouth, um, does something every day to be embarrassed. Mm. And what that is is just going outside of the norm. And for me, that is what, you know, publishing is for for me. I don't think that that, and when if you write, it's not necessarily always having to be to get published. It can just be to tell that story, and that can just be mm. for you. Um, and I think something that's very important to me in my process is being somewhat nihilistic about it. What if no one likes it? Oh, well, at least I did it for me, which is super hard yeah. place to get to. Mm. But so it's like the same thing I did with the, the the list. I might not get on any list. I did. It feels so much better than feeling like that was going to change my life or validate me. Mm-hmm. Like when we put all of our, you know, uh, how old are you? Are you over 25? Uh, yeah, um, I am. I'm not. Okay, so <laughs> you might still be doing this. But for us, like feeling as though you had to do everything by your 25, you didn't. You turned 25 and it's like, oh, well, there's still more time. And it's that kind of there's thing. There's actually a lot more time. Yeah. Than yeah. And so it's that kind of that feeling of, oh, there's more. And so I think if people who are seeking publishing can treat it in a way where if you do amazing, if you don't, that's also OK. You'll be a little bit more spontaneous, a little bit more open and receptive to different possibilities. Mm. And it's it's the reason why manifesting works, because we're able to shift our psyche to something being unattainable, to actually something being named. And that's why it's important that we name our identities sometimes mm-hmm. so that way we can understand ourselves. Whether or not we share that with other people is up to us as well. But it's all a progression. It's all a storytelling. Yeah. And if you can feel like this isn't what will change you, then you can be a little less precious with it and a little bit more open with it. you got to be guarding yourself, you know, because mm-hmm. people do steal ideas because we live in a colonistic world. Yeah. Where <laughs> conquest is everywhere. But... I think that's the biggest thing, but it's really the onus is on the publishing industry. The onus is on the people who have more power relative to us, who feel as though, oh, you know, my editor doesn't want to see this, so I'm not going to show them. You're gatekeeping. It's owning that. Absolutely. It's under the guise of, for other people, it's not relatable. What does that mean, right? If what we does were that concerned about relatability, the, the Kardashians wouldn't be famous. Yeah. It's not about <laughs> relatability. P- 
people love a story that they will never be able to attain. What is the next chapter of your story? I mean, you've achieved so much. You're such a brilliant person. And what is next for you? So I'm starting to dabble into the beauty space. And that's like very limited info, but that's all I can really say about it. And I'm very excited. Exciting. Um, And trying to bring education into different spaces. With influencing, for example, there's this perception that either you have it or you don't. And that's BS. The idea that in influencing or whatever it takes, like you have it or you don't, is complete bullshit because there's a formula to everything. Algorithms, the reason why the algorithms are racist and ableist and all these, you know, you know, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, all these things is because the people who are writing them haven't done that work and they keep portraying it as neutral. They keep doing the same thing America is doing, which is making these assumptions, hoping for this result and then not accounting for the people yeah. that they already don't value. Going and then, for default settings again, like, uh, right? Exactly. And it's just building that that space, which yeah. is why the metaverse will be racist unless that work happens <laughs> externally. Because they're just going to keep hiring the same engineers or, you know, preventing the engineers from being their full selves. It's just going to be this constant repetition. And so I think... For me, what the next step is, is helping to people, helping people to see that. Um, but I also want to shift from doing, you know, writing and social media to influencing in ways that are not just, you know, housed in one space. Like when we talk about writing, sometimes it's not just books. Sometimes it's screenplays. Sometimes it's storytelling. So I'm going to do that introspective work of figuring out the mediums that might work for me to tell mm-hmm. those stories. Um, but every step of the way, and I encourage everyone to do this, is to determine ways where you can be just a little bit revolutionary in what you're doing. Yeah. doesn't mean that you have to reinvent the wheel or be innovative in those ways. But when you see something and somebody tells you, no, this isn't going to work and you can, you know, decipher their, you know, kind of impress- oppressive intent in there to do something a little bit revolutionary and figure out what's the power that I can sacrifice in order to make it better for somebody else. And so I'm um, looking at like TV and beauty spaces. I'm quite excited about it. That's so That's exciting. exciting. Thank you. So in the end there, we ask this one question, which people find puzzling at times, right, Elisa? It's, don't ever ask me this question. I don't know how I answer <laughs> it. <laughs> if you were to define America um, in a word or a sentence or a phrase, how would you do that? I would say that America is an ambition that cannot be reached if we continue to act as though we have nothing to learn. That's great. You make it seem so easy to answer that question. That's a great answer. That's wonderful. It was so much fun. I... I think this is one of the best interviews we've had, right? I mean, amazing. Thank you so much, Blair. This was so good, Blair. Thank you so much for coming. And maybe, if you're okay with it, we may, you know, announce a giveaway of your book. I will absolutely sign as many copies as you need, and we can totally do that. Yay! You hear that, Immigrantly fans? (laughs) Get a copy of Blair's book. Thank you so much, Blair. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you, Blair. Seriously. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to our today's episode as much as I liked recording it. I am so excited to share that we are indeed giving away a copy of Blair's book. So listeners, head to our Instagram at ImmigrantlyPod for a chance to enter. And while you're there, comment on our post and let us know what you thought of the episode. Until next time, take care.